Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee, and welcome to episode 22 of the Benzo Free Podcast. Today is part two of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Wright. If you haven't listened to part one, it might be a good idea to back up and listen to episode 21 first. Today's format will focus only on the interview. It's worth the extra time, trust me. But before we move on, do remember that the Benzo Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. That's it for our intro. Let's move on to our feature. In case you're curious about Dr. Wright's bio, we shared it last time in episode 21. Please check it out there. And that being said, let's pick up where we left off. You know, one of my concerns is the use of other substances in the withdrawal process. Uh, because there's by that's definition, a great topic. That's a great topic. To that, talk by about. definition, yeah. you're going to have neuroactive substances there as well, which may be useful, but they may be problematic. And, and for those individuals, and define that. What do you mean by the other substances? Well, the other substances might be uh, cannabis. Okay. Uh, you know, which very typically uh, one might consider. Oh, I've got this calming kind right. of effect uh, that occurs with cannabis. Why not use that? Well. One of the reasons is we may find 20 years from now, just like we found with benzodiazepines now, that there's a real adverse, more durable, negative consequence than we had anticipated. What is a medicine? A medicine is a substance to solve a problem. Right. And whether that's derived in the laboratory or from a natural source, to me, doesn't matter. The real critical thing is... Does it work? Does it work without side effects? And if there are side effects, are they manageable? And will it have a durability of benefit and limited side effects over a long period of time? And that's where the the real challenge comes in, you know, because it's very expensive to do a study uh, to figure out if something works or doesn't work. How are these studies being funded? Studies are funded in a couple different ways. Right. Uh, first of all, by pharmaceutical companies who perceive a potential economic gain uh, by developing a product for which they have exclusive rights to uh, and can sell over a period of time. Okay. There are a group of substances, however, that are generally recognized as safe, are considered to be supplements or nutritional products that are allowed to make uh, claims on benefits through a 1994 law uh, that are, are on the market already. And, and so pharmaceutical companies do not see the benefit of, of 
studying those particular agents. Well, there, there would be no benefit. The, at, at most, it would actually be a negative benefit to their company if they uncovered... That it you didn't know, work. Exactly. Or or had complications and had it's, severe long-term effects. But that's true for the various vitamin products, et cetera, right. out there uh, that, are, that are promoted. Uh, you know, you're not going to see studies from those companies okay. that uh, produce supplements or vitamins because there's a potential that you'll identify that it doesn't work. Right. Uh, and in fact, vitamins have been shown to not work excepting in... Well, and they also have kind of the loophole. They're they're outside the FDA's jurisdiction, aren't supplements and vitamins to some degree, so they don't to have to go through... To a certain degree, and that's yeah. the 1994 law okay. that uh, uh, was promoted by uh, Orrin Hatch uh, way back in the day, uh, which to a certain extent I take issue with because... Mm-hmm. If that law were not in place, we would now have the data on substances uh, uh, that uh, we don't have now. However, we have the NIH, uh, okay. National Institute of Health, NIMH, National Institutes of Mental, Mental Health, Health, which does studies periodically on substances. Uh, so, for example, in the pain domain, glucosamine, uh, we kind of had a sense that that worked, worked for our puppies, right? Uh, right. It appears to work well. Uh, but there were no studies. There was no economic gain for any company to really develop uh, studies in that in that regard. Finally, the NIH did uh, two studies and found that it works yep. and found that it limits the progression of knee arthritis on MRI studies. So eventually, you know, the, the government agencies or not-for-profits will get to that. Uh, but we're not going to see that happen with benzodiazepines. There, there are a pair of study designs that I think are worthwhile. First of all is the typical efficacy study that can occur over a 12-week period of time. Now, because of the nature of benzodiazepines, I would suggest a longer-term study, a 24-week study, to look at efficacy as a starting okay. point. Uh, but then, uh, and that's placebo-controlled. But, not, but ha- now that's efficacy. That's not looking at side effects, side effects and complications and withdrawal. So okay. what you need with side effects and complications is one year, and because of the nature and the cost of it, you're going to have to do that with an open-label process. What about permanent? Um, Like, you know, later did some studies way back when on possible brain damage and, you know, damage to to those processes through these drugs. I mean, you know, can those studies be done? Is that still something being looked into? Well, yeah, it it should be looked into, and we're looking into it uh, in terms of what would be useful. What I think is particularly, these can be done. It's it's just that it it costs a lot of money to. Well, who's who's going to? I mean, I know I know governmental grants are very you know slim, and of course, as you mentioned, the pharmaceutical companies won't pay for these. Why would they? So where does that, like with your research that you mentioned the Alliance was doing, where does that funding come from then? From all of you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank well, you. Well, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it, it is indeed a, okay. uh, a, a real challenge. Because it's so very expensive to do efficacy study and one-year safety studies or two-year okay. safety studies, what I think is the next best way to look at this to get to some answers is to look at the symptoms as they're expressed by the survivor community, the patterns. Why did you leave your medical provider? Because I think that the benzodiazepine survivor community is largely invisible to medical providers, 
and researchers. Okay. And so I think to study that particular group, pair that with animal research that says, mm -hmm. hey, these crazy sounding symptoms actually have valid neurophysiologic right. basis. You put those two together as a starting point. And then perhaps we can get changes at the regulatory level, which by that I mean we at the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices want to see a change in scheduling with the DEA okay, and labeling by the FDA. And let's, let's go back to that. This is scheduling, and I talked about this in the book, but you mind elaborating? What is the current schedule on benzodiazepines within the DEA? All of the benzodiazepines are now at Schedule 4, which means that there is some addiction liability and some concern in such a way that they need to be controlled more so than a blood pressure medicine, which doesn't have that same kind of experience. Now, upscheduling to go to Schedule 3 or Schedule 2, you've got to have rationale for that. Okay. The typical rationale uh, for upscheduling is addiction. That doesn't occur exactly with much frequency in benzodiazepines. Right. Some, which kind of places it at that schedule four. However, the language also says not only uh, addiction liability but also physiologic dependence. Okay, there we go. And so we at the alliance want to sit in front of the FDA and make the case for the severity that is experienced in a subset of individuals to such an extent that it warrants greater caution on the part of prescribers that warrants, therefore, upscheduling uh, maybe to three, maybe to two. And so, for example, alprazolam that does seem to have yeah. greater addiction liability might be a schedule two and other benzodiazepines at schedule three. Okay. This would put prescribers on notice that, hey, there's a bigger problem out here than previously right. recognized. Uh, but that's not the only thing we want to have happen. We want a black box that highlights particular concerns about uh, withdrawal. We want an informed consent process that actually sits within the prescriber okay. information is called the medication guide. If you look under medication guide within the prescriber information, which is the formally adopted, uh, you know, approved, FDA approved mm -hmm. uh, uh, information that prescribers receive about an agent. And then there's a thing called REMS. Okay. Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategies. There was a law that was passed in 2008 that was enabling uh, legislation for the FDA and actually required the FDA for to provide additional education to prescribers when there's a higher risk for a particular medication. So, for example, we see that with the opioids today. Okay. That all of the companies that produce opioids, whether generic or brand name, must provide an educational module or mechanism for prescribers that uh, prescribers can access and learn more about the safety concerns and how to manage all of that. We think that that's the way to go here with benzodiazepines. And the, one of the reasons is, is that that will have a multiplier effect because it's paid for by the pharmaceutical companies that are oh, okay. providing the medications. 
we don't have the money to right. to to get the level of education out there that we need. But if the pharmaceutical companies have to chip in uh, right. to this process, uh, then we think we may have uh, something that'll have a stronger effect on okay. the prescribing a, a community. Because our ultimate goal at the alliance is to change prescribing practices. Exactly, which is which is where it all starts. Um, there's so many directions I want to go here. <laughs> it opens up so many doors. But talking about the research now, you know, from the lay layperson's point of view, like myself, there have been studies. There have been studies that actually, in our opinion, have shown that there is physiologically physiological changes and physiological dependence has been created by these drugs. I guess the question we have is, what does it take? What volume? What What's the miracle study? What's how many studies have to be done? What's What's it going to take? for it to be recognized by the DEA, by by um, the AMA, by different organizations to say, hey, these cause physiological dependence. We need to change prescribing practices and develop, you know, protocols for withdrawal. It's not the presence of physiologic dependence in and of itself. It's okay. the level of severity. Okay. And it's the issue of frequency. And so uh, we would like to be able to identify how frequent it occurs, and there's uncertainty about all that. And certainly we Fair. have... Uh, the information about the severity, but it's not in the literature. And so okay. it really is going to take a building the base of literature, uh, speaking to that over time before we arrive with the FDA. I'm certain it's there. Your listeners here that are survivors yeah. know very well from personal experience, it's real. Uh, we just need to make sure that it becomes uh, evident in the literature now okay. uh, for all of us to to see that. But here, here's the issue, uh, evidence-based medicine. So f the stuff that I think you might be referring to with Malcolm later are the uh, uh, imaging studies of the brain. But a picture of a brain uh -huh. that's abnormal doesn't mean there's a connection to a symptom. Right, but there have been some studies, like there's been some studies on, say, flumazenil, who actually have shown the relief of the symptomology by by the infusion of the flumazenil. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but... You have to connect neurophysiology to symptoms. Okay. We will have to connect the animal studies to what what's happening symptoma, uh, symptomatically in human beings. Okay. Uh, you have to connect brain imaging to what happens symptom-wise. So, for example, we know uh, for in chronic pain that MRIs of the back, they can look horrible and you'd have zero pain. Right, I got you. So you have to make that connection occur. The same problem occurs in relation to trying to figure out what kind of a diet, what kind of health, uh, uh, general health things that you can do in the withdrawal process is going to make a difference. Okay. So keto diets or, right. you know, uh, issues. Well, there's so many things to research, especially on treatment of withdrawal and managing withdrawal. But the problem is this, you know, there, there are there, the evidence base that says neurophysiologically, it makes a lot of sense. Things are better when you do, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a healthy diet. Right. That's, entirely different than actually having a study saying, here are a bunch of benzo uh, survivors mm -hmm. who are doing withdrawal, and half of them did the diet and half of them didn't, and getting a result. Understand. Okay. That's a different kind of evidence-based process, and it's really important to understand that uh, when 
when you sit in our shoes as medical mm-hmm. providers, we, we want to see the evidence that individuals that employed the diet got better and individuals that didn't employ the diet didn't get better. More so than just seeing that, uh, you know, healthy diet is a good idea because of certain physiologic things. One, one of the things that, a simple example that reminds me of why this can be problematic is the issue of uh, bone density. Okay. It's kind of a diversion, I know. Sure, go ahead. So uh, bone density has a lot to do with fractures. You right. want to have fractures. So as you get older, you, your bones tend to thin out. Fluoride makes your bone dense. Okay. Seems like it would work. Seems logical, right. Dense and brittle. Oh. And you actually, so just because physiologically you see dense bone doesn't mean symptomatically it translates into reduced fractures. That's why you need evidence-based studies on on diet and, you know, other mechanisms to say this is the best way to go. Now, I'm all over a healthy diet, et cetera. I'm not going to discount any of that. Uh, But in terms of really having that seal the deal with medical people like me, you need to have those studies uh, ultimately. That makes sense. That helps. I think it's there's there's such the divide because majority of the people who have become organizers are lay people, are, are often the benzo survivors or um, caretakers of those people. And we're doing the best we can to, to catch up Absolutely. mentally and, you know, to learn to learn, the, I mean, I, I know so much more now about, I never even knew what GABA was before I went through this. And now I can recite details about GABA receptors, the mechanisms and everything. Right, right. We, we've been forced to train ourselves. Exactly. And we're just trying to get to be on par so we can have that evidence-based technical discussion with the providers and say, hey, you know, this is what actually is happening. And we're looking for the clarity. And of course, like you just mentioned, there's so many mechanisms that might be involved. The clarity is lacking, and it may always be that case. But we kind of want to know, hey, it's this, 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 and this. We're trying to get to that state because then our message will be clearer. And we believe more people will take us seriously. Um, I think a lot of the work you're doing, a lot of the work the Alliance is doing and other teams and, and doing the research is helping build that evidence box. But I know a lot of people out there are thinking, you know, you know, this has been, these drugs came out in the early 60s. What does it take? You know, when, when you know, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy came out in the 70s and said that these are, I'm paraphrasing, are disastrous drugs, referring to Valium and Librium at that time. And then for it to kind of just die off again, and now they're back again with a vengeance. You know, historically speaking, we're wondering what does it take for us to actually make the difference and and change prescribing? So... We're in a culture, we're in a society where often it takes crisis. Yeah. Just, it's just the reality of it. Okay. Uh, I, you know, doing addiction medicine and pain management over the years, used opioids uh, and took people off opioids regularly when the whole issue came up with the fifth vital sign and opioids were the answer for all things. I didn't believe it for a second. Uh, but nonetheless, there were individuals that kind of tracked along that fashionable curve, right? just like we're in the fashionable curve now of removing opioids from individuals that probably do need it. I'm not going to say that there's nobody out there that would benefit from long-term use, but 
there certainly is a lot to be said for doing the tapering in a proper, very slow fashion. Right. And it's slower than I ever imagined it. And my my comments yeah. now, and it's not quite evidence based, but it has to do with the pr- presence uh, of the severity of withdrawal that some individuals have is that one should consider a tapering process when you start out uh, to be about 18 months. And then if it, if it can go faster than that, you'll see that by listening to the patient, (laughs) the patient will say, Hey, that last step, that was a breeze. Well, and allowing the patient to have some say and control over their taper because they can kind of sense when they want to stabilize at a level before continuing. Well, that's absolutely correct. And, And this is where personalized medicine takes over from evidence-based medicine. So evidence-based medicine says go slow, Mm -hmm. but personalized medicine says how slow. Yeah. And it's a conversation. It's a back and forth. It's it's like that worked, that didn't, and how do we need to uh, adjust with that? But it needs to be slower than one uh, one might anticipate for a couple couple reasons. First of all, it needs to be slow for a, a, a significant proportion of individuals. Second is... Individuals, and correct me if I'm wrong, that come in for a benzodiazepine taper are fearful. I, as a medical provider, going to throw you under the bus. Yeah. I am going to go, okay, let's do 10% per week until we're done Uh, (laughs) or something crazy. And, And so you need to have a therapeutic alliance that involves trust. And so as a medical provider, I recommend that prescribers, uh, do a couple things. First of all, I think it's useful to go to a long-acting benzodiazepine like diazepam right. yeah. and uh, and then make the reduction less than 5%, one milligram, Yeah. Uh, for example. And, and that makes it so much simpler for those who don't follow because, of course, diazepam, basically like I was on clonazepam, which is 20 times the yeah. potency of, of um, a volume. So it's very difficult. I taper directly off of clonazepam. Right. I realized I took 16 months. My mistake was that last quarter milligram, which is as small as my cutter would cut my pill, I was dropping five milligrams, 10 milligrams of volume at the very end. Right. Now I realize why I had problems. <laughs> well, yeah, and no wonder. And so you go to, say, 40 milligrams of va- uh, Valium, whatever the equivalent right. is, just to pull an example out, drop one milligram. What does that do? Well, you'll find out is that fast enough? Is it too fast? And you also uh, have a, a patient as a prescriber who says, hey, this person is not going to just run me run me over with this uh, withdrawal process. I can trust this person because you need to have trust uh, in yeah. this process. And if that one milligram is a breeze, you can think of two milligrams next time. Well, and like it was like with, with, with clonopan and Halcyon, I believe it is, it's a 20 to 1. With Ativan, I think it's a 10 to 1. People say one milligram. A lot of times, people don't know to ask, what drug are you on? Well, that's correct. Yeah, uh, because uh, you, you can't just drop no. one milligram of clonopin and get away no, with it. No, would not. Be. I, people <laughs> have done that in cold turkey, and that didn't go well. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's uh, not, not, not a good idea uh, whatsoever. But it's the back and forth. So evidence-based medicine just gets us down the road a little bit. Personalized medicine then is the real answer for how this goes going forward. Another reason why you don't want to go really fast, because if you go really fast, there'll be a moment 
where you say, oh, I got to go back up on dose or you use as needed dose, medicines. Yeah. And then you get into the kindling yep. uh, where you fire up the central nervous systems in ways that make the subsequent reductions can you, more can difficult. Can you talk a little more on kindling? Is kindling a physiological um, process that's been identified or is it still more of a the syndrome or more of a where does that lie well i think i think it's real and you know it's just uh, I, i'm not a neurophysiologist right. but from what i have read that the uh, the best evidence on kindling has to do with alcohol okay and what the what the idea is is that repetitive withdrawal attempts fire up neuroadaptations in such a way that subsequent withdrawal attempts are more difficult and we've seen the same kind of pattern with regards to benzodiazepines. And so when you go on and off an agent, and that can be a relative thing, where you make a reduction and then go back up on the dose or use as-needed as medications, that there are adaptations that occur that make the subsequent reductions more difficult. Right. And I, th I think that's the best model of describing what goes on uh, for for some individuals. I mean, uh, in terms of the symptom progression, we certainly see that kind of a pattern out there uh, as to whether or not, you know, it, it, the term kindling is the exact answer to that. I don't know, Okay. but it, pro it it's the best answer that I come up with uh, to represent that experience. Okay. Let's go back to prescribing practices for benzos again. You had mentioned for, of course, alcohol detox and for um, for medical procedures. We had talked a little bit the other day about also using them as a bridge drug. And is that still something you recommend? And if so, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, and that and that's what I mean when we wanted when we talk about limiting duration of use. Okay. So benzodiazepines very effective in the short term for anxiety and insomnia related issues and certainly can be recommended. However, just like with opioids, it has to do with using these agents that can be dangerous only when individuals are functionally quite impaired by their condition. So, okay. uh, you know, I, I, I can't negotiate and get to work or take care of my kids because of my anxiety or my sleep problem or something like that. I'm just so overwhelmed. So there are other things that also work, and the problem is, is that benzodiazepines work right now, and other right. things take a while to start. They take a while to start, and it may take me a while to get to a therapist to actually start it. So you're it, talking about therapy like CBT and CBT, that type of thing. Uh, okay. cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, but even pregabalin. Pregabalin okay. is probably the one medication that works the quickest, takes about a week. So... If some, somebody is functionally impaired and the anxiety is significant uh, that causes the functional impairment, uh, then the bridging with benzodiazepines while I'm getting something else going to prov provide the long-term solution is probably the way to go. How do we keep that? So, so say, what, how long is that prescription for? Is it for a week or two weeks? And if dependence can develop in two to four weeks, or even some people have said as short time as 11 days or something. How do we, how do we make sure that that person does not become long-term dependent? We can't. Okay. I mean, we live in an imperfect world uh, right. in that regard. Uh, 
historically benzodiazepines beans were a great advance over the barbiturates. Barbiturates, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're looking for another great advance. <laughs> uh, it just doesn't seem pretty evident on the horizon. Could be CBD, by the way, uh, in terms of anxiety, but I don't okay. know that. Right. You know, I'm not advocating everybody jump out on that one. Uh, and you're talking about, so when you say CBD, you're talking about hemp-based or straight CBD with no or little, no THC, right? Talking yeah, about we don't know the exact answer okay. to that because there might be an entourage effect that requires a little bit of THC. And, and actually, it, it, the entourage effect from uh, THC is probably not as important as the entourage effect from uh, the terpenes. Uh, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, we don't know the answer. Exactly. Uh, so... <clears throat> and it's going to be a long time uh, coming. And I want to make clear, too, that any of the discussion that I have is not a direct recommendation at all. You need to speak with a medical provider yes. that has some basic knowledge about all of this. Uh, but again, you need to speak with a medical provider who's going to listen to you as well. It's a bi-directional, exactly. uh, you know, working through process. Okay. Uh, you're going to learn. He or she is also going to learn. Yeah. So, so back to the topic, which was um, if somebody is extremely disabled and, like you said, can't get to work, can't, then, then you start to consider the use of the benzodiazepine as a bridge drug. Well, you know, you don't take a lot of time considering it because okay. this individual is in crisis. Okay. And we need to do something right now, but you need to not do just one thing, benzos. You need to get the other thing going too. But this is what I would do. I would, you know, for somebody severely affected with an anxiety uh, state, I would order the benzodiazepines and, and follow up in uh, uh, one week, two week. Okay. Order the pregabalin and make the referral. So in any one community, it may be difficult to get in in a month. Yeah. Uh, but the pregabalin's on board. If they're not functionally impaired, hey, I've got time. Okay. I'll get you to a therapist. And uh, with a CBT uh, kind of process going on, if that doesn't work, then pull in pregabalin. Pregabalin is something I know little about. Can you explain what class of drug is it and what, is, what effect does it have? So pregabalin, the brand name is uh, Lyrica. Okay. It's a calcium channel modulator, so it works outside to some degree, uh, but uh, does have... Uh, a uh, indirect effect on GABA. So there's problems. Uh, well, that's, what, that's, that's where I was going to go with this, is how do we know there won't be long-term complications from the pre we don't. Okay, we don't. thank you. But here's the deal. Here's the okay. deal. We don't live in a, a perfectly safe world. Correct. You know, coming up here to do this podcast, mm -hmm. I could have gotten in a horrible accident. Uh, am I going to stay at home all the time right. to minimize, to eliminate, to try to eliminate any risk? no. We're gonna we're gonna do things that have some risk. We want to kind of keep the you keep things in a safe harbor. So okay. you know, chemotherapy for cancer, uh, is it really great? Yes, but there are some people that are going to die from the chemotherapy. So right. uh, with the medication, so it is not going to be perfect. Although what we want to do is improve over a period of time our ability to identify individuals who can be successful with benzodiazepines for the short term okay. or won't be successful on that 11-day trial that results in uh, permanent problems. Eventually, I think we'll have a uh, better ability to deal with uh, identifying those individuals uh, as well. Okay. Uh, but 
it's an imperfect world. But you do want your provider to kind of be tuned in to exactly. some degree. You don't want them totally. Yeah. Uh, so back to, you know, how do you relate to a medical provider? Yeah. I think rather than being giving declarative, definitive statements to people in any kind of relationship, okay. the best strategy is to ask a well-constructed question. It does a couple things. Uh, it basically uh, indicates a willingness to listen to the other person. You know, you're not just right. in there telling the medical provider Good. they're stupid, uh, and you ought to follow. You know, yeah. Heather Ashton to the you know to the to the word. Uh, although that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless, it, it's not a matter of. Um, I realize that as a medical provider, the, the, the key element in the, in, in the process of working with patients is not that I'm right. That's not the goal of the office right. visit. It's that somebody gets better. So it's not that the goal of the office visit for the affected individual is not to prove that you're right, but to have a solution. You come uh, together jointly that works for you. And so uh, very typically, it's better to ask a question that is kind of directed towards something you may even be aware of in terms of Give a me side an example. Oh boy, what should I do when in my withdrawal experience I have these loud sounds? Okay. Rather than saying, "Don't you know, medical provider, that gotcha. the benzodiazepines and the withdrawal experience is creating this?" But you ask a question rather than, you know, uh, be, you know, the relationship goes both ways. What I found is that the three most important words in a relationship, regardless of what yep. they is, it's not I love you. Right. Maybe you're right. I love that. That's great. <laughs> but it's true for both sides of this equation. Yeah. It's, it's true for the medical provider. And you want to hear that from your medical provider that there's, okay. Well, it kind of comes back to a little bit of Dale Carnegie's advice. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Which questions, don't go in there and start lecturing because nobody is responsive to somebody coming in and say, I know absolutely what's right, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this new process out there. What's not that new, actually, motivational interviewing. And okay. What's the key elements there? Well, you listen, you listen empathetically. But the key thing is for medical providers, you ask patients, what's your goal in life? Okay. Separate set of questions. What's your current behavior? And are the two linked together? So individuals, yeah. so in the addiction arena, you know, my goal in life is, you know, to see my grandchild graduate from high school. What's your current behavior? Well, I'm smoking and I'm sitting here on oxygen. Yeah. Are those two connected together? You know, five years from now, <laughs> you're going to be able to show up to the graduation ceremony. Odds aren't looking good. Yeah, but I don't have to lecture to somebody to answer that question. Yeah. The set of questions, uh, the patient then says, oh, that may not connect, and now can you help me? And the same thing as you're working with your medical provider, asking questions that are somewhat leading. That's true. Uh, but this, uh, but your approach is different. But your approach is different, and... And it actually is true. You don't necessarily know the correct answer right. either. And and so you're kind of coming to this, uh, the answers together with your medical provider. Both of you have expertise. Both exactly. of you have limited expertise in the other person's area. That was the big realization I think I came through. And I, that's, I, I, I moved from just 
listening to the doctor and trusting everything the doctor said to becoming a partner yeah. with the doctor saying, I know some things about myself. I know some things of what I feel. I know this better than you do. We're going to figure out how to get me through this. And I would, I would like to withdraw. Can you help me? That, that's exactly right. What I think is going to happen here is that in the field of addiction, in the field of benzodiazepine survivor community and the solutions that are attached to that, is that we, these, these groups are going to inform general medical practice as to how to do medicine okay. properly. And the medicine properly is that there's a participation on both sides of this. And there's an, actually, there is no side. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's working together. So I was in a treatment center working in the 1990s, and I came to the realization that the physician was not the center of the medical universe. I was <laughs> devastated. <laughs> I thought that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm still working on that. I know. <laughs> Let me know how you're doing on that one. Uh, I'm curious. But, it was, <laughs> but, but I came to the realization it was the care manager. Uh, you know, because what was happening at that particular time is that patients would move from hospital to outpatient and so forth, and my excellent plan could not be deployed because the care ma there was no care management to get them to the right setting without reusing okay. their substance of uh, of addiction. It really is true. We, this is a real team-based process. It's real integration, and the integration needs to occur with the prescriber, yeah, the pharmacist the peer coach, the patient, mm -hmm. the family. Okay. All of those together. And each individual or groups of individuals has expertise that the others don't have, and that's got to be respected and, and honored. And you, in your interview process of medical providers, individuals that you interview need to have the appropriate level of humility to recognize my role is this, and it's also my role is to listen to the expert on the symptoms that are occurring for this particular individual is right. the relationship between events, the waves and the windows kind of thing. Is there a connection yeah. between external circumstances and waves and windows that uh, is relevant to uh, the next uh, iterative solution? Okay. Let's close out with a, one last topic. And we kind of touched on this at different times, but I kind of wanted to just tackle it as a center point, and that is what can we do? Then you mentioned, of course, research is key. The Alliance is working on some of that. Of course, within the, the Benzo community, lay people like myself are working on raising awareness. We're trying to get the message out and supporting those people who are withdrawing. I was on a team that was helping try to seek some changes within our government and include legislation. And I mentioned to you that we were working on informed consent legislation. You had some concerns about that, and I was wondering if you'd like to share with me your views on, especially from the legal aspect or from the governmental aspect, why that might not be or might be the best route and what other routes might be more effective. Well, I, I remember an advocate for going through the open doors. Okay. And, and that simply is not one. And, and why is it not an open door? Because there are many, many medications out there, probably four to 6,000 medications. Okay. Uh, majority of which have severe, although rare, side effects. What's going to happen is, is, is the perception of a slippery slope mm -hmm. by the medical community. Are we going to have to have paper signed informed consent on each one of these okay. products out there? It's impractical. We can't get the job done. 
There's not enough room in an exam room to keep all that uh, volume of material uh, or keep everything loaded into a uh, uh, you know, Word documents on my uh, iPad or something like that. So there's just no way that the medical community is uh, any parts of it. And and I am, I'm a benzo reformist, and right. I don't think this is a good idea. Uh, so if I I don't, you can be sure that the individuals that are not benzo sophisticated are all not going to be because we're going to ha- end up having to do this with diabetic medications and hypertensive medications and so forth. And it's, it's just an impractical thing. Okay. So, you know, we want to make sure that something works. Second is, uh, if th- something is going to be placed into a legislative area, we want to know that making it a legislative requirement actually does work. So in the informed consent process, okay. Uh, just because you legislate, it doesn't mean that I, as a medical provider, are going to do that. Okay. But third is, we actually have a process that's available right now that really requires that uh, medical providers provide informed consent. And it's tied into my license. I have to practice at a minimal standard. Okay. And the minimal standard means that whatever treatment process that I recommend or provide to a, a patient needs to be attached to informed consent. So there is a process if I am deficient in that regard. And then, of course, to medical... But, but if, the, if those physicians don't believe that benzodiazepines are a dependence-inducing medication, then they're not in violation of that ethical dilemma. Is that correct? Or? Well, no. I mean, not exactly. I mean, they, they have to have a sufficient knowledge base to know okay. that there are risks. And so, I mean, the potential is there is if you see an egregious example of a medical provider never doing informed consent, you can notify the board, and the board does an investigation. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved with the board on both sides of that issue, on behalf of the board, on behalf of uh, physicians uh, facing would, the board. Would the board really, I mean, since benzodiazepine physiological dependence still doesn't seem to be the the belief that that's a serious issue still doesn't seem to be pervasive in the medical community. Is that something the board will take seriously? I don't know. I okay. can't speak for the board, but I mean, basically, informed consent is not just an issue of, you know, physiologic dependence on right. benzodiazepines. It's, you know, uh, informed consent needs to take place on uh, when I do stitching of a very simple laceration. Okay. And so that too doesn't have typically severe consequences most of the time, right? Uh, but occasionally does. But I still, uh, informed consent is still required. So outside informed consent, where, where do we make the difference? One of the things that when we met with the uh, Department of Health, we mentioned informed consent, and I kind of kept pursuing it as a team member, even after our conversation. By pursuing it, we were, we were raising awareness of the benzodiazepine issue. One of the things that kept coming up in that conversation, and we've talked about this, was continuing education for the physician. Is that an arena that we can make an inroads? Is that arena we can help to get benzodiazepines on the, what's the term I'm looking for, on the syllabus for that type of thing? Is that an area we can make a difference? Maybe. Okay. Yeah, but the real question is how effective is your typical CME talk? 
Uh, you know, uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, you think, oh, guidelines, uh, pay, uh, docs are going to follow the guidelines. So I, I believe, if I recall correctly, guidelines on diabetes in terms of establishing what ought to be done. About six years passed before 50% of providers actually started doing that, uh, those guideline-related things. So I think... You know, since we're a, a society that responds to crisis more than anything yeah, else, are. is that uh, to go through the opportunities as they present themselves in crisis. Now, so for example, Matson et al. Uh, in an article, this, these are CDC folks uh, looking at opioid-associated overdoses, identified uh, it, it's not in the abstract, interestingly enough, and it, but, no. but even though it's a big number, 51.6% of opioid-associated deaths also had benzodiazepines on board. It's a big number, yeah. That's a big number. That's a big number that should have been in the abstract, not just in the body of the paper. Okay. But it's there. And Dasgupta et al. in North Carolina found 80% of the opioid-associated overdoses. These are big numbers. These yeah. are of crisis proportions and need to be deployed in terms of uh, how we describe that. Not that I w want to support a society that only responds to crises, because had we been paying attention to the benzo issues outside of the crisis proportions that we're right. in right now, we'd be much better off. Nonetheless, that's how we operate. And, and, and the, the little press that benzodiazepines seems to receive is usually focused on the overdose epidemic. Yeah, so that's the... Which, which makes sense. That's the entree. It, yeah, uh, and it makes sense, but it's also frustrating for those people who have suffered the iatrogenic illness of being prescribed the drug and are dealing with the long-term. Is our message still getting heard that this is a long-term dependence issue also? Well, I take this as an entree. And so if somebody okay. says, uh, come talk to us about opioids, and oh... You're talking ah, about benzos now, too. And so I, I actually very typically... So we can my, use the opioid crisis to actually help us as a vehicle. I like that. It's okay. a vehicle uh, in that regard. But the other thing is is that, uh, and I know there's initial work being done on this uh, through Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, and that yeah. is uh, to be, because it's so expensive to do the studies to look at the side effects of the proportion of individuals at that severe level... Let's just go to the benzodiazepine survivor community and ask them questions. What are the side effects that you experience? How right. severe? What are the withdrawal experiences? How severe? What is your experience with continuing with the medical provider that you were with or no longer with? Uh, and why is that? Uh, so the Alliance, we just had our board meeting. We're okay. going to support that process. We're going to ask uh, that particular group, how can we support that? And it's, it's, there'll probably be some economic elements. And so for the community as a whole, supporting this through BIC right. or through the Alliance uh, uh, economically and otherwise, uh, but it's not just economic. We, the the design of the education recognizing that there are limitations for the medical provider audience is probably best done in a two-hour format okay. where didactic material is given for about an hour and a half and patient expression of their experience for the other half hour. That's a model that we deployed, um, you know, in actually larger time frames at the International Benzodiazepine Symposium. 
the expression by patients, the, uh, the individual experiences, probably much more important than anything I said okay. about the geeked out literature that I love to yeah. you know geek out on. Uh, but we want individuals that are comfortable to be available to to speak to their individual experience because that speaking to the individual experience probably turn more uh, people around than the evidence-based literature. Yeah. So I think that this leads to two types of studies. One is sort of the numerical, quantitative, uh, you know, 57% of individuals had hyperacusis, the sensitivity to sound, or whatever that number is. Okay. And then the other is the uh, a, a narrative study. And there was a beautiful, beautiful study in the pain domain that was done in relation to the narrative experiences of individuals that had mm-hmm. success and poor success with opioids, uh, or, or absence of success, rather, uh, with opioids. And it walks through the kind of uh, narrative experience and kind of collects the sort of trend lines in terms of experience. That's the kind of... Uh, narrative experience that I think is really important. That's evidence too, but not what we traditionally think of as evidence-based medicine, Uh, but it's the experiential aspect of all of this and how that, uh, what are the trends uh, in relation to those kind of experiences and what can that can inform us? Because that informs then what we next do in terms of evidence-based research uh, in, in that regard. Because my perception is, is that in my practice and many others, probably, uh, people drifted away because I wasn't listening, that I was discounting. And okay. if indeed that is the case, which we can find through the narrative experience of individuals, that informs the evidence-based research in terms of what can we do as medical providers to be a better recipient of uh, that kind of information without discounting those experiences and coming to solutions that work for patients. Okay. That's good. Thank you. Let's. I want to ask one final question, and that is, for the patient who's just found out they're dependent, read some horror stories, unfortunately, on the internet, is is scared to death of what's going on, has already faced some tolerance withdrawals, is looking for medical support. What's your advice? What do you tell this person? You know, where do you direct them? What would you tell that person to do? Take a deep breath and take a pause. Okay. Take care of yourself. Uh, Form uh, your supportive network and plan before you do any actions and uh, plan with a medical provider that uh, you have interviewed and is primarily a good listener, better yet, has some benzo-wise type of knowledge that is going to be helpful, but primarily is a listener and is willing to pull out the Ashton Manual uh, and other resources and uh, regard what you and others have said about that experience uh, as being valid. Uh, And then proceed uh, slowly. Uh, Recognize that for the majority of uh, of such individuals, you've been on these medications for years. Whether you stop or start to uh, taper off this week versus next month, is going to be inconsequential. Uh, I know there's a sense of desperation that got to get rid of these right away. Well, that probably won't make a difference. It's the ultimate success that's going to be important, not rapid attempts at success that 
can result in failure. Rapid reductions, if you push the uh, your prescriber too hard, they're going to say, oh, gosh, I guess I've got to move this down 10% per week. And and that can be a, a horrible mistake uh, for the mentions uh, for the issues that we already mentioned. Yeah, I was actually told by my provider I had to wait six months before I started my taper, which was extremely frustrating at the time. And I look back on it, I realize he was brilliant because I was not in an emotional mindset to handle the taper at that point. He he told me go get some tools, build your tool chest, and learn how to manage your anxiety, and then we'll talk on the taper. Well, that's that's correct. So, I mean, there are tools that you can kind of build up around this, yeah. but yeah, preparation is really important rather than speed into a tapering process. Okay. Well, that's great. I just want to thank you for coming into the studio, talking with us today. I hope you'll do it again with us shortly. Well, I'd love to, but I, I want to mention one more thing, and that is, uh, I want to apologize. <laughs> you know, um, I, we, we weren't listening and uh, we need to change the trajectory on that. And, you know, you've been extraordinarily patient with those of us that uh, have taken a while to come around uh, to this pro process. And uh, I honor and respect and I'm so sorry uh, about all that and sorry that it needs to continue in order for it to be successful uh, over the long term. Uh, but but it will happen uh, this time as opposed to previous attempts, 1979 with Kennedy, the mm -hmm. main study group, a uh, lot of efforts that kind of, you know, withered on the vine. This can't happen this time. This has to yes. have durability. And so it's important for you to support your benzodiazepine survivor community, but it's also important, I think, to support the communities of individuals are trying to change prescribing behavior as a as a mechanism uh, to move this along. And as horrible as it may seem, patience is going to be required in that whole yeah. process. And uh, Rumi, great poet. Uh, I like Rumi. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> had to be an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> I think he might be right <laughs> uh, because he he said these words: "The wine we really drink is our own blood." Our bodies ferment in these barrels. We'd give up everything for a sip of this. We'd give up our minds for, for a glass. Soul drunk, mind ruined. These two sit helpless in a wrecked wagon. Neither knows how to fix it. And my heart is more like a donkey mired in mud, struggling and sinking deeper. That's the experience of addiction. But yes. it's also the experience of individuals uh, that are trying to move away from benzodiazepines. And we need to respect that yeah. as medical providers and rec recognize that we need to be in this game together uh, to work through a solution. I appreciate your patience with us. I hope to encourage the patience among the medical providers and the listening experience that we would like to see them involved with going forward. Thank you so much for being in the studio today. Thank you, Dee. Yeah, I appreciate it, Steve. And well, I really do too. So we'll talk to you soon, and and we'll touch base later. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Thanks to Dr. Wright. As I mentioned earlier, when I speak with Stephen Wright, the time just flies by. What a great addition this two-part conversation has been to the Benzo Free Podcast. My sincerest thanks goes out, and and I hope to have the opportunity to work together again. I truly do. Now let's take just 30 seconds for a disclaimer.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering or any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org slash disclaimer. I'm not sure if there will be a podcast episode next week after we doubled up here, but I'll let you know. Until we talk again, please keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself.